Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, and uh, excited to be with you guys today. Uh, we've got a lot of great stuff to talk about, um, both as far as the uh, uh, the debt are concerned, um, and also some very interesting marijuana news. We haven't gotten to a lot of marijuana news lately because we've had some great guests uh, who have kept us very busy uh, talking Grateful Dead. Uh, but this week, uh, it's just uh, me along for a solo ride. So, well, well that's not true. We've got uh, producer Dan out there doing his thing, you know, live from the offices of Vankst in Denver. So uh, plug out to them and Carson. Way to go, guys. You're the best. Um, but yeah, a fantastic show today. 52 years ago, July 31st, 1971, the Yale Bowl, New Haven, Connecticut. And if you were there, you would have heard this. song it's sugary we know it we love it we can't live without it but here's something you may not have known that was the very first time it was ever played live right there from the very beginning of the song you heard the first notes of the first time uh that sugary was played live in concert by the grateful dead on july 31 1971 at the yale bowl um obviously uh, a song with uh, lyrics by longtime grateful dead lyricist and garcia buddy robert hunter uh, the music is all Jerry's, and it was written by Jerry for his first solo album, Garcia, which was released in January 1972. Uh, and interesting note that we've talked about, but uh, always great to emphasize, especially you know in the modern days of guys like Dave Grohl, who can play every instrument under the sun. Uh, on the Garcia album, Garcia played every instrument himself except for drums, which was played by Kreutzmann. So that's the one. That's the one place where where Dave Grohl edges him out. Sorry, Jerry. Um, but Jerry played acoustic guitar, bass guitar, electric guitar, uh, all played through a Leslie speaker. Uh, it was released as a single from the Garcia album, and Sugar Ree peaked at number 94 on the Billboard Hot 100 in April 1972 and was Garcia's only single ever on that chart. Uh, so here it is, first performed live by the Grateful Dead on 30, uh, July 31, 71. Uh, even though it was on Jerry's solo album, it was very clearly a dead song from the start because here it's being debuted by the dead six months before the Garcia album is even released. Uh, this may not even be the best version of it ever. It's not, but it's the first. And there's something kind of cool about that, that uh, uh, you know, I, I like the way that that worked out on, on Garcia's first album. There was a number of tunes that wound up in the dead repertoire, just like off of Bobby's Ace album that we've talked about. But 
uh, you know, this one, the dead were already playing it and Garcia hadn't even put it out yet. So uh, for me, that's great. It, it, a, a fan favorite and, and a permanent member of the dead's touring uh, songbook played about 360 times by the dead over the years. Last played on July 8th, 1995, the penultimate Grateful Dead show at Soldier Field. You know, as I'm putting these together, I'm always amazed by the number of these shows last played on either July 8th or July 9th. It, it seems like, you know, we've talked about 50 songs over the last few weeks, and most of them were played that last weekend in Chicago one way or the other. But uh, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, you know, just seems that way because I'm, I'm looking at it all the time. But, uh, you know, either way, they kept a lot of these songs in the rotation forever, and uh, Sugary was one of them. It was always uh, one of my good buddy Mikey's favorite dead songs. Always would greet you with a What's Shaking Sugary? Give a quick shout out to Mikey, Alex, Andy, Lynn, Harold. They just saw Tedeschi Trucks this weekend at Red Rocks. Uh, my wife and I had to miss it this year, uh, but I know they all rocked out. And they were joined by our good friends from Chicago, Lori and Monty. And interesting news here for uh, active listeners. Lori was part of the group at the Joni Jam with uh, Judy and Andy. Uh, we just have to uh, get Amy into a story one of these days and you'll have the whole group. Uh, so lots of great musical cross relationships developing all the time. That's why we go to the shows. Well, that and the good music, but uh, all the people we meet and all the people we get to hang out with and all the great things we get to do. So if you're at the Grateful Dead show on July 31st, 1971, you're thinking, wow, this is cool. I'm here and I just saw uh, you know, the uh, the third song of the show uh, because they didn't open with uh, Sugary. They actually opened with trucking or very good trucking into sugary uh but we've heard we've heard and talked about trucking before so i dived in but that's number two and then uh right after sugary uh they 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 break out another new one for us dan song of the show this is also a breakout version of this song first time ever played live by the grateful dead a great pig number uh it was played a total of 50 times uh after this debut uh so you know you, you get a two for right off the bat with sugary and mr charlie ultimately it was played uh, throughout the next year and then interestingly played at all 22 shows of the europe 72 tour uh including the song's last performance ever on may 26 1972 which was the final show of the Europe 72 tour at the Lyceum Ballroom in London. You know, that that's kind of a great way, uh, uh, if you're at this show, to, to really hear some great stuff. This, this one was also written by 
lyrics by Robert Hunter, but this time the music was by Pigpen. Um, it was his song and his time and the band dwindled. Uh, so did a number of his tunes. There's no post pig resurrection of the song by the band. I think um, Phil and friends may have played it once or twice. And uh, some of the other cover bands may have, have touched it, but uh, after Pigpen died, well, not even, even before, because after Europe 72, they were done with it. And interestingly, this falls into the category of songs, a, a large number of them that were released in the early 1970s, but never made it onto a studio album. So released, meaning they were played in concert, um, and then maybe they'd show up on a live album later on. Uh, but interestingly enough, at that time, there were rumors of a planned album to follow up on Working Man's and American Beauty, uh, and that although nobody knows for sure, seems like it might have included this song as well as Bertha, He's Gone, Loser, Brown-Eyed Woman, Ramel on Rose, Tennessee Jed, Pigpen's other song, The Stranger, Two Souls, and Communion, all songs that were being debuted in, in concert by the dead uh, in the early 1970s, between 71, 72, 73, but never made it onto an album. Um, it might even had enough tunes there for a double album. And the the story, if you will, is that the dead abandoned the project when they decided that they wanted to get out of their Warner Brothers record deal and try and go off and uh, and do something else in terms of getting their music out to the public. So unfortunately, uh, it was an album that was never to be, uh, but we do have these songs on a number of great uh, albums. The, the original Grateful Dead live album, Skull and Roses, as a lot of people like to call it. Uh, a lot of these are on Europe 72. Um, a lot of them are on Steal Your Face. A lot of them are in the Grateful Dead movie. So there's a and and you know between all the Dick's picks and Dave's picks, you can you can hear them just about anywhere. But uh, what a great night at Yale, right? Two two songs that are just coming right out of nowhere and uh, fun for the crowd. Now um, there's an interesting story that goes along with this show. And I can tell you that I spent a hell of a lot of time trying to uh, track it down, and I was not able to. But I did listen to the uh, entire 25-minute Dark Star very carefully because rumor had it that somewhere in the midst of that song, Jerry stopped playing, pointed to the moon, and said, just think, man, right now there are men sleeping on that. Well, what did he mean? Well, July 31st, 1971 is also known in history as the day that astronauts drove on the moon for the first time. Apollo 15 astronauts David Scott and James Irwin drove the lunar roving vehicle on the surface of the moon. It's the first off-planet automobile ride ever. So Jerry knew what he was talking about. The problem is uh, I wasn't able to track down Jerry saying it. I can tell you it's not in the dark star. It's not in the darkness jam, which we'll get to a little bit later on. And it wasn't in any of the introductions or uh, uh, crowd noises. And um, you know, I'm sure you can pick up the crowd noises on this. But that's because it's an audience tape. And, you know, before Dave's picks and Dick's picks and all of that stuff, when we wanted to listen to Live Dead, uh, we, we listened to audio cassette tapes. And the overwhelming majority of them, for most of us, were not bootleg uh, or, were, excuse me, were not board, soundboard tapes. Uh, they were actually tapes made by deadheads in the audience, and guys with great equipment and everything. But if the people around you started whooping and hollering and yelling and screaming, uh, there wasn't a whole lot you could do. And, you know, so there's many of these concerts that we heard over and over and over again, uh, hearing them from the perspective of the crowd. Uh, where you do get all of that crowd noise. And uh, it's really kind of a treat, you know, if the dead ultimately release some of these albums, some of these shows on live albums, and then, uh, you know, you really get a chance to go back and listen to them kind of clean and uh, the way it was intended. But 
you know, if there's any group that uh, inspires good enthusiasm among uh, it, it, its listeners, it's certainly the Grateful Dead. So uh, it is fun to hear uh, uh, hear the songs just the way the uh, the people might have heard them. But uh, so yeah, this is a uh, this is an interesting night. The Dead actually have been on the moon. If they had already written the song "Standing on the Moon," I'm sure they could have played it. That's too easy to call, and too easy enough that it may have been that. Uh, you know, Jerry might have blipped right over that and uh, forgot to do it. You never know with him, um, and, you know, and, and where he would go. Uh, this was a big pig pen show on our uh, show of the day here from Yale. He played Mr. Charlie. Uh, he, he played a big boss man that was great. I always loved that. I didn't have a chance to listen to it or to, to play it because we, we have some other ones going on. But uh, this next clip that we're going to play uh, is definitely uh, – uh, it's not a pig pen song, but he made it his own with the Grateful Dead. The dog sucking his man in show business, Mr. Pig Pen. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to Handle is a 1968 song written by American soul singer Otis Redding along with Al Bell and Alan Jones. It was originally recorded by Redding. It was released in 1968 as the B-side to Amen shortly after the singer's sudden death in 1967. The song also appears on the 1968 album The Immortal Otis Redding. Redding's version reached number 38 on the Billboard R&B chart and number 51 on the pop chart. American band The Black Crows uh, covered the song for their 1990 debut album, Shake Your Money Maker, reaching number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100 with their rendition. Uh, Chris Robinson and the Black Crows really, I think, uh, were one band that 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 also uh, can kind of say they took that tune and they gave it their own personal touch. Uh, but but Deadheads are particularly fond of uh, Pigpen's version of it, uh, which we were just hearing there. And it was performed by the Grateful Dead about 90 times between March 15th, 1969 uh, at the Black and White Ball, where they actually opened the show with the song. And I did not know what the Black and White Ball is, but I discovered, thanks to the powers of Google and all of that, that the Black and White Ball is the Bay Area's largest black tie street party and a tradition since 1956, a night for high society and just plain folks to mingle in gowns and tuxedos around Civic Center Plaza to listen to music. And apparently uh, bands like the Grateful Dead and uh, Jefferson Airplane uh, and uh, other local bands of that genre were regular performers, uh, as were other uh, uh, um, San Francisco uh, associated music makers. And I know nothing more than that, but I just love it when the Grateful Dead kind of integrate themselves 
into regular society, uh, you know, and they start dropping a tune like hard to handle on a tuxedoed crowd. And, you know, what must fun that must be if you're there and you're a deadhead and, you know, you're a little turbocharged and you're in on the joke and think, boy, this is, uh, this is great stuff. Um, so, and, and then they, they, they basically stopped playing it in August, 1971, which is very interesting because, you know, Pigpen was still with the band, uh, almost for another whole year, uh, certainly through uh, Europe 72 tour, which ended, as we just said, at the end of May of 1972. But they dropped it and it, it didn't come back up. And since that time, it was only it's only been performed twice uh, on a this, two nights uh, back uh, back to back, December 30th and 31, 1982. So uh, part of an, uh, uh, an annual New Year's run of shows. Uh, on both nights with Etta James taking the vocals uh, with support from the Tower of Power Horns. Now, you know, that's a great show. And, uh, you know, the Dead always would do stuff like that at their New Year's shows, uh, you know, bringing out tremendously talented people to play with them. Uh, Tower of Power were regulars. Uh, Etta James is just such a remarkable singer in her own right. Uh, and the Dead do such a great job uh, with blues and uh, soul numbers that, uh, uh, you know, they make a great combination uh, doing everything, uh, together like that. So, you know, hard to handle really, really fun song. And, uh, pig died and the song died with him as far as the grateful dead uh, were concerned. And it's just unfortunate, you know, Bobby tried to keep a few of his uh, things alive and, you know, done a generally good job. But at the end of the day, these are shoes that are just a little too large, uh, both, uh, metaphorically and actually probably for people to fill. Um, and, uh, there's not a deadhead out there, I don't think, who's, you know, listened to the band seriously, uh, who wouldn't tell you what they wouldn't give to be able to just go back for one night and see a show with Pigpen up on stage with the band, strutting his stuff and doing his thing and barking out his blues numbers and drinking from his bottle and, you know, telling raunchy stories to the crowd. And uh, it was an experience and, you know, it was all part of the Primal Dead experience and it spilled over into Americana a little bit. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, Pig was gone and, and the band pushed on without him and, you know, went to higher and higher heights in 73 and 77 and, you know, throughout good chunks of the 80s and the early 90s. And, you know, always with slightly different personnel, especially at the keyboard. Uh, but I like to think that the spirit of Pig Pen was always with them and, uh, you know, never really quite left the band. And, and that would be a great thing. Um, well, as promised, we are now going to take a moment and swing over into the wide, wide world of cannabis, Dan. La, 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 pot, pot, give us some pot. Forget what you are, you can be what you're not. High, high, I want to get high. Never give it up if you give it a try. Thank you, Dan, another one of your very, very clever uh, marijuana leaders. And I'm not even going to pretend that for a moment that I knew that that was Neil Diamond until... Uh, uh, Dan let me know and, uh, you know, I wouldn't have to sound like a total stuttering fool out here. Um, but yeah, you know, the guy who gave us sweet Caroline is sitting there singing about the, the wonders of pot. And you know what? That's a great intro for today because we've got some really good stories. And these are my favorite kind. And if Rob was here, he'd be rolling his eyes and saying, man, you always talk about this stuff. And I say, you can't ever talk enough about it. And we got a, a whole set of stories today from, um, Marijuana Moment and our good friend Kyle Yeager, and uh, thank you to them as always for putting out such uh, great news sources uh, in marijuana for us to uh, be able to uh, link into and work with. Uh, and this week we found ourselves at Marijuana Moment, and uh, 
here's my stories that I think uh, everybody's going to like to hear. The first one, we've already had this story in a different format, but it's just another one. Medical marijuana linked to lower pain and reduced dependency on opioids and psychiatric prescriptions. Another study shows the key word in all of that is the word another, right? We have one, we have two. Now we have another study after study after study. So another study has linked medical marijuana use to lower pain levels and reduced dependence on opioids and other prescription meds. This time, researchers at the University of Florida carried out a three-month pilot study to assess the efficacy of cannabis among middle-aged and older chronic pain patients. One month after the participants initiated medical marijuana use, they completed surveys detailing the benefits and side effects of of the alternative treatment option. The study published this month in the journal Cannabis found that the most participants, excuse me, found that most participants perceive medical cannabis to be overall effective for chronic pain management. The benefits that they reported include reduced pain and anxiety, improved physical and mental functioning, better sleep quality and mood, and less reliance on prescription meds, including opioids and benzodiazepines. And I'm sorry, my friend Dini, who you know knows all these drugs, is going to laugh at me, but I'm even going to try and say it again and just chalk it up to the fact that um, I'm not a pharmacologist, and so I can't say benzo. Maybe it's benzodiazepines. How about that? Benzodiazepines. Let's try that and see if I finally got it. One 51-year-old patient uh, that medical cannabis treat, reported that medical cannabis treatment is pretty damn effective. I'm no longer using my walker. I only take my meds, opioid, opioid pain medications, one time a day instead of three, and I haven't had a Xanax in 30 days, she reported. Others said that they've been able to use cannabis as a complete substitute for certain prescription drugs. It's great. I've never ever used medical cannabis before. A 43-year-old woman said, with pain, I haven't had to take any medication and I've been taking medication for years. All these narcotics and other meds, I was surprised. I didn't know it was going to help me like that. It really, really works. So here's the upshot of all of this. This is one of the latest studies in a growing volume of scientific research showing the therapeutic efficacy of cannabis for pain. For example, a study published by the American Medical Association in February of this year found that chronic pain patients who received medical marijuana for longer than a month saw significant reductions in prescribed opioids. The American Medical Association also released research showing that about one in three chronic pain patients report using cannabis as a treatment option and most of that group has used cannabis as a substitute for other main pain medications, again, including opioids. State-level marijuana legalization is associated with major reductions in, pres- in the prescribing of the opioid codeine, specifically, according to a study that leveraged data from the, FD, uh, from the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. So let's just start off by saying, Ross, doubt that, you know, go suck eggs again, mister. You know, you and your, it doesn't, help anybody. It doesn't work for anybody. This is not just one study. This is another study and another study and another study, all telling us the same thing. So we can either believe it or we can stick our head in the sand. I know there's some people in this country that like to stick their heads in the sand, but other people say, you know what? I'm going to listen. It's been enough. doesn't mean you have to like it. doesn't mean you have to use it. What it does mean is you have to lay off other people that do use it. You can't be skeptical if somebody tells you I'm using marijuana 
in a medical way. It helps me with my pain. It helps me sleep. It helps me with my stress and anxiety. It helps me with an upset stomach. It helps me, and you're about to hear all sorts of other ways it can help you. The point is, if people say it helps them, it helps them. You know, if you don't participate in it, then you're, that's fine, but you're not in any position to know, you know, and your opinion on the subject, quite frankly, is uninformed. Doesn't mean you can't have an opinion, but it does mean that, you know, you're probably not the best person uh, to be spreading the word on this. Medical marijuana works for so many people. And whether you call it medical marijuana, whether you call it adult use marijuana, and I'm just buying it because I'm self-medicating or because I've gone to a doctor uh, who has prescribed medical marijuana to me, not just written me into a program, but healthcare provider who has specifically treated me with 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 uh, uh, specific strains of marijuana based on my symptoms and and my condition and where I've seen relief from all of that. This happens, and it's always happened, and it happened way back when I was in college and law school. And I used to have a, a you know a very upset stomach, I'm sure, from all the stress of running around and trying to get all of that done. And marijuana worked wonderful for me, you know, put me on all sorts of other meds and I couldn't sleep well, or they'd really upset my stomach or they would really cause me anxiety, but the marijuana always worked. It it never, uh, it it, it never caused those problems. And back then, you know, when I was going to law school in Columbia, Missouri, where, you know, I was the left-hand side of the political spectrum, folks, if there wasn't anybody in my law school class in 1987 at the University of Missouri, uh, who was any farther to the left than I, and I like to consider myself a somewhat middle-of-the-road kind of guy, certainly liberal on key issues, but maybe not quite as liberal on others. But when you go to school down there, it doesn't take much to make you the uh, the left-hand side of that spectrum. And uh, uh, it was always very interesting, but I managed to get through just fine, and uh, marijuana played a, a significant role in all of that. And, and, you know, I tell that to anybody who wants to hear it. Some people don't, some people do, but facts are facts and uh you know we can't ignore them we can't wish them away and uh, that's just the name of the game now if that was just one more positive marijuana story we'd all say okay good let's get back to the grateful dead however that's not just the first story it's the first of three stories that we're going to talk about here so bear with me on the marijuana side here for a little minute for a few minutes folks because uh we've got some really good stuff we're going to get back to our concert in a few minutes Uh, with more information about the songs they're playing, uh, a quick update from uh, John Mayer and his final statements on Dead & Co. and um, our uh, regular final wrap-up. But right now, how about if we explore a story again from Marijuana Moment that tells us now marijuana is linked to an enhanced runner's high and lower pain during exercise, a new study has found. Marijuana is associated associated with enhanced exercise experience, making running more enjoyable while reducing pain, according to a new study. Researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder surveyed 49 runners, asking them to rate various aspects of runs after consuming cannabis and without using it. The study published last week in the journal Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research found that participants experienced less negative effect, greater feelings of positive effect, tranquility, enjoyment, and dissociation, and more runners' high symptoms during their cannabis versus non-cannabis runs. They did run a bit slower after consuming marijuana, with researchers observing that they ran 31 seconds slower per mile, but they said that was not statistically significant. Participants also reported low pain levels after their cannabis versus non-cannabis run, the study says. 
perceived exertion did not differ between runs. Results suggest that acute cannabis use may be associated with a more positive exercise experience among regular cannabis users, it concludes. Research using various methodologies, a range of exercise modalities, and diverse populations is needed to establish the long-term harms and benefits associated with this behavior, as well as the generalizability of these findings to other populations and settings. But here's the key. The positive effects of cannabis that the runners report is consistent with the findings of a 2019 study, which found that people who use marijuana to elevate their workout tend to get a healthier amount of exercise. Older people who consume cannabis are also more likely to engage in physical activity, according to another study that was published in 2020. Goes on. Similarly, in another stereotype-busting study that was published in 2021, researchers found that frequent marijuana consumers are actually more likely to be physically active compared to their non-using counterparts. And meanwhile, the use of medical marijuana is associated with significant improvements in the quality of life for people with conditions like chronic pain and insomnia, and those effects are largely sustained over time, according to yet another study published this year by the AMA. So we're, 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 we're rolling out study after study here. So people who say, oh, yeah, well, I don't believe it, or oh, yeah, you can prove anything once. No, in fact, everything is proving this. And, and as I talked about last week or maybe the week before, this is all consistent with studies that go back to Dr. Lester Grinspoon at Harvard in 1984, whose research I relied upon to easily win a debate in my debate class at uh, Michigan my senior year over whether marijuana should be legalized in Ann Arbor. This evidence existed back then. You know, you had to, you know, again, you had to go digging for it. There wasn't an internet where it got put right out there where you could easily find it. But, but we're not breaking new ground here, people. This is stuff that we've all known. Uh, Raphael Meshulam in Israel has known this. Um, the, the researchers in the United States have known this. And, you know, those of us that use marijuana and then go out and engage in physical, physical activity, we know it. <laughs> what I like about that story is, um, at first glance, people might want to say, well, hey, maybe it is performance enhancing, but, you know, although it may not be statistically significant, if you're trying to run in the Olympics 31 seconds off of every mile, uh, that will kill you. It, it may not really be all of that uh, in performance enhancing uh, other than it keeps you in the game and uh, keeps a smile on your face, you know, while you're trudging through uh, your miles, or your laps in the pool or, or whatever it is you're doing. But again, positive story, marijuana doing good things, not harming anybody, um, you know, a positive identification, uh, you know, a, a positive spin, if you will, which is all so important. And then uh, the third story that we have, and, you know, unless you're Ted Cruz, it's really, really hard uh, to dump on veterans. Um, you just don't find yourself doing that very often, and nor should we. Uh, political affiliations aside, uh Veterans are the most important people we have in our country. They're the ones that fought and made the ultimate sacrifice or risked the ultimate sacrifice out on the battlefield. Those are the ones who have, you know, quote unquote, kept alive the American way of life, although many of us now debate exactly what the American way of life might be. But luckily, uh, a very large majority of us agree on the fact that whatever that American way of life is, it should include cannabis and marijuana use. So we got that going for us. Uh, but medical marijuana improves medical excuse me, military veterans, quality of life, and reduces prescription drug use study fines. Again, Kyle Yeager from Marijuana Moment. And all of these articles are really basically saying the same thing. They're not the same studies. 
They're not the same uh, testing groups. They're, they're all very different. But we notice here how every uh, reduces prescription drug use. Well, we just read about it reducing prescription drug use, improving of uh, the military veterans' quality of life. We already read and heard about it improving people's quality of life. But again, there's something about being able to say that it helps veterans. Politicians don't like to vote against things that veterans like, especially things that make things that make veterans feel better and reduces their stress after they went and, and, and didn't make the ultimate sacrifice and fought in our armed our, our served in our armed forces, whether on active military combat or whatever else their duties might have been. And the, the very large number of us uh, that have never had that experience. Uh, you know, all, all, owe all of these people a huge debt of gratitude. This isn't like a place, say, like Israel, where every single person, they reach a certain age and they go into military service and that's just it. Um, so in that respect, it doesn't make you any more unique than anybody else. But here, where it's all voluntary, um, I, I think it speaks a lot to the quality of the people who choose to go in. And again, I may not agree with them philosophically. I may not agree with them politically. Uh, we may not even cheer for the same college football teams, but nevertheless, uh, they're certainly entitled, uh, you know, to the thanks and honor from this country uh, for going and doing those things uh, so that the rest of us don't have to go do them and uh, still get to enjoy uh, the freedoms and the privileges that we have and uh, hope that we'll be able to keep. But going back to our article, um, it reads that over 90 percent, 90 percent of U.S. military veterans who use medical marijuana say that it improves their quality of life many using cannabis as alternatives to over-the-counter and prescription medications, according to a new study. This time, research at the University of Massachusetts, University of Utah, and cannabis research institutes looked at self-reported survey data from 510 veterans who said that they consume marijuana, seeking to better understand the purpose and experiences of their usage. A majority of the respondents, 67%, said that they use cannabis daily, and about one-third, or 30%, said that they consume marijuana to reduce the use of other medications, including antidepressants, 25%, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, 17%. Another 21% said that cannabis has allowed them to reduce their use of opioid-based medications. Overall, 91% of the veterans said that cannabis improved their quality of life. Veterans who were black and who were female, who served in active combat, and who were living with chronic pain were more likely to report a desire to reduce the number of prescription medications they were taking, the study says. Women and individuals who used cannabis daily were more likely to report active use of cannabis to reduce prescription medication use. Medical cannabis use was reported to improve quality of life and reduce unwanted medication use by many of the study participants, the present findings indicate that medicinal cannabis can potentially play a harm reduction role, helping veterans to use fewer pharma, excuse me, fewer pharmaceutical medications and other substances. There's particular interest in studying the possibilities of cannabis as a treatment option for veterans as the population disproportionately suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder and high rates of suicide. A 2019 survey from Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America found that 20% of veterans have used marijuana for medicinal purposes, while 66% have consumed cannabis for recreational purposes. As far as the medical side goes, veterans are able to speak with doctors at U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs about their use of cannabis, but, and here's the killer, the doctors remain prohibited 
from filling out the forms required to issue a medical cannabis recommendation in a legal state. A bipartisan congressional bill, as well as an amendment attached to a VA spending legislation, aimed to change that this current legislative session. But that's just, I mean, a little beyond bad, right? Um, you know, who is the federal government kidding here? Uh, there's really nobody who's against marijuana use, and those who are shouldn't be making public policy anyway. And in the meantime, we're recognizing something that would be wonderful for these veterans, and the government says, nope, we're not going to let the doctors sign off on that because marijuana bad, marijuana dangerous, marijuana, we don't know what the hell. No, 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 we're, we're going to take you guys right to the opioids. That's what could go wrong uh, with giving somebody opioids to help them uh, reduce stress and pain and things like that. Well, you know, we know a lot, but, uh, you know, again, we wait for the government, you know, to kind of come around and really take a fair and honest look at all of this. And, and all of these steps that they're taking are great. And all the studies that are coming out are wonderful. But until our policymakers really sit down and embrace these studies uh, as, as actual public policy, I mean, there's an argument to be made here, at least to be considering that people who are out of shape, people who are overweight, uh, perhaps they should be smoking marijuana. Perhaps that will make them more active. Perhaps that will give them an urge to go out and exercise and do things. I'm no expert. I'm not saying it will. But if there are studies coming out that saying it's a possibility, doesn't that at least bear some scrutiny? Doesn't that at least warrant you know, or merit you know, letting some people try it? Okay, fine. Some people may get high and just collapse on a couch. But we find out that kind of stuff with any medica- medication, with any type of uh, um, medical uh, uh, um, system that you go through, uh, you know, or medical or, or ritual or, or program, whatever the word I'm looking for is there, regimen, um, right? Because some things work for some people and some things don't. But it, it, it's not a quite, we shouldn't be hiding these things. You know, we should be telling people and being honest and saying, look, in, you know, 91% of the time, veterans uh, who used medical cannabis reported positive outcomes. You know, I, I think that there's a strong bond uh, among veterans and, you know, a strong belief that if, if something's working for one veteran or one group of veterans, that other veterans, you know, may be more likely to give it a go and, and see if it can work for them. And uh, they should. This, again, is, is, is so readily available now in, in many states. Those states where it's not, it should be made readily available because of studies like these. And because, you know, if we're not out, uh, you know, to really try and focus our efforts on protecting our veterans, uh, you know, then in all honesty, who, who are we really trying to protect at this point? And we've all gone down this road and we've all talked about it. We don't have to protect our kids. You know, we don't have to protect uh, a, a lot of people, um, you know, who come out with something like this. And uh, this is marijuana. We know it's safe. We feel good about it. And, um, you know, I would hope that uh, everybody moves forward and allows these kind of things to happen in a way where everybody can benefit, whether this is a a question of uh, the way that you like to relax or whether it's a way that you like to medicate yourself um, and uh, uh, whatever it might be. So at any rate, lots of good stuff going on there. And, um, you know, stuff that's always uh, fun to talk about and very positive, and I'm very happy to see it. Uh, not a whole lot more happening yet on the bank bill. Um, not a whole lot more happening on federal legalization. Uh, but, you know, these types of studies help move those efforts forward because I really do believe it becomes harder and harder, uh, you know, for the government to um, 
really be able to just ignore it after a while. Uh, if you've got things that help veterans, why aren't we doing it? You know, and I don't want to hear extremists in either party, you know, coming out and trying to push back as well. We don't want to encourage drug use. We don't want to encourage that. We encourage drug use, folks. If they're going to prescribe Xanax and 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 these drugs that I can't even pronounce to these guys, and marijuana will accomplish the same thing and is a safer. It's like, why would you tell your kids to drink alcohol when they can smoke marijuana at school, right? The old one will kill you, one won't. Let's recognize this. Let's not be scared off by marijuana just because it's marijuana. I hope I'm preaching to the choir here, but if anybody's listening uh, who's not entirely sold on this prospect yet, get with it and, and read the data and read the research and see um, why it's such an important way to go. And then you'll go out and, and as you read more and more of these articles, it just brings a smile to my face. Another study, another study, another study. We can never have too many of them. Back to the Grateful Dead on July 31st, 1971 at the Yale Bowl in New Haven, Connecticut. And, uh, you know, how great is that, that the uh, the Grateful Dead are out there um, playing at uh, certainly one of the most prestigious institutes of higher uh, education in this country. And, um, you know, uh, Yale College uh, or Yale University uh, would never have uh, wasted its time with a guy like Larry Mishkin, for sure. Rob Hunt, on the other hand, uh, probably could have written his own ticket there. And Dan Humiston, I'm just surprised that he didn't. But, uh, you know, that's their loss. Um, but I do know, actually, a couple of people who have gone through Yale. My cousin Rachel in Chicago uh, is a uh, an Eli, a Yale graduate. And uh, hats off to her for that. Congratulations. Uh, cousin Rachel might also be known to regular listeners of this show as the younger sister of cool cousin Brent, uh, who did not go to Yale, I'd like to point out. So uh, this was something that his sister was able to accomplish. None of the other grandchildren on that side of the family uh, were ever quite up to that standard. But uh, I know that she uh, uh, keeps in touch with the school and, and, and always likes to know what's going on out there. And my good buddy Harold, uh, his son Johnny, uh, is a Yale graduate and now is traveling all over the world, spending long chunks of time in Asia and other places like that, which I guess must be a very Yale thing to do if you know how to speak all those languages and uh, you actually have a brain instead of the rest of us who just kind of, you know, go through life trying to figure out what to do next. Um, but yeah, you know, look, uh, the Ivies love the dead as much as anybody else. And why not? Um, you know, the dead would go out there and shake them around and uh, everybody has a good time with it. And, uh, you know, if you've ever been to any of those colleges uh, that make up our wonderful Ivy League, uh, you will know or you will find uh, that there are many, many students there who are very happy to uh, tie one on, as they say, uh, with whatever substance happens to be available at the moment. And many of them will uh, turn on the Grateful Dead. And just as a quick throw in, there was another article that I didn't have time to get to, uh, but is now saying uh, that based on polls they've been taking, uh, your likelihood of becoming a deadhead uh, is irrespective of whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And on the one hand, I think that's kind of cool. Um, on the other hand, I want to say to them, good, you love the Grateful Dead, so what the hell is wrong with you the minute you walk away from the music? Um, and of course, that's just my own independent legal position, or not legal position, political statement. I don't speak on behalf of PodConnects or anybody else, not, not even my co-hosts. I just like to get that out there every now and then. Um, but we, we welcome them all. We've talked about Ann Coulter being a deadhead, and that's great. Um, uh, Tipper Gore was a deadhead, although I think uh, people would associate her and her husband with being more on the liberal side. She was the one for the long time making the big push on censoring rock and roll lyrics, which earned her the uh, uh, despisement from, uh, if that's a word, Frank Zappa, 
um, who always had a good time going out and tweaking the noses of people like that. Um, but, uh, you know, look, at the end of the day, uh, Yale and the Yale Bowl, kind of historic place, uh, uh, right? They play the Harvard-Yale game there every other year, so that's kind of cool. Um, lots of famous things that I know nothing about, but if you went to Yale, you probably know all about happened there. And the dead went to this, uh, the dead went there and played. And um, it was fun because in, in the notes after the show, uh, it, was, it was even more than that a little bit. Uh, the deadheads were kind of spilling out uh, onto the big lawns at the school there. Uh, some run-ins with the cops, some gate crashers, uh, stories of, elect- of, of gallons of electric Kool-Aid at the gates with cups so everybody could get some. You know, really just another typical dead show. Um, and uh, parents, just because you're sending your kids to these schools doesn't mean they're not going to Grateful Dead shows and getting turned on. Uh, to the stuff that all deadheads like to get turned on to. But back to the concert, uh, here's our next song, which was just really coming into its own at this time. Beauty had uh, just come out, so it was just getting played. And, uh, it, it, you know, it's one of those songs that, that Deadheads love and love and love, and we can never quite get enough of it. A, a Bobby Weir tune, uh, but it was on American Beauty. And it, it was early here, but the part that I like about it, the part that I picked here was, was primar- primarily a musical jam, um, you know, because it, I think it's so wonderful. I think you could tell from the crowd reaction uh, that they loved it too. You know, we all know the lyrics, but this is the kind of jamming uh, that made this a dead standard and a favorite among deadheads. The version is still early enough that actually it appears basically in the middle of the second set, uh, not yet having moved to its almost permanent spot as a second set closer. Although for those occasions when they open up a show or uh, maybe even a second set with a Scarlet, uh, with a Sugar Mag, and then uh, would save the uh, Sunshine Daydream uh, to close out the show at the end and kind of put a nice sandwich around everything. But most of the time, uh, it was the uh, um, it was it was the show closer. And uh, the notes from the Deadheads mentioned this is one of the highlights for them. And you know, we we as Deadheads, you know, always loved loved this. Nobody liked walking out of a show uh, at the end, and nobody liked you know hearing, oh no, this is this song. We 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 know from experience this is the last tune. Um, and then, then this is all done. But when it was Sugar Magnolia, you were almost kind of looking forward to that last song because you had that little bit of energy left and they'd get out there and they'd jam it just like this. And it was one of those songs that over the years, there might be subtle changes here and there, but it was basically always the same song, um, you know, played more or less the same way. And as far as I'm concerned, that was perfect. It was the way the song was intended to be played. Um, it, it is a great, great tune. And uh, always been one of my favorites, uh, you know, if I'm going to a dead show and I want to see one song 
uh, or and I want to see five songs. Uh, Sugar Magnolia will almost always be on my list. And I will say, but I want it at the end, darn it, because that's where I'm used to having it. You know, again, yes, if you're there one night and they, they, they yank it out and they open the show with it or something, that is cool because it is different. And I do enjoy that, too. Um, but, you know, otherwise, uh, very, very happy with it as a as a show closer. Um, and apparently they are, too. So uh, that's a wonderful version of Sugar Mag. Now, this next one that we're going to play um, is, is interesting. And you'll be forgiven if you don't immediately recognize it. And if you do recognize it, then you should pat yourself on the back because uh, you're quite a dead aficionado. So let's hear this one. That's the darkness jam and uh the darkness jam uh, was one of the various themed jams played by the dead uh in their early years um based on different music or different things uh this one came from the 1969 young blood song darkness darkness uh which came was a single and came out on the young bloods uh, album elephant mountain in April of 1969, the song was written by Jesse Colin Young, uh, who is a very, very well-known uh, artist, both in terms of writing songs and performing songs. Um, and it's been covered by a number of different artists. Um, Young's band, the Young Bloods, released it, as we said in their 69 album, Elephant Mountain. They released a version of the song as a single twice in 1969, which reached number 124 on the Billboard chart, and in 1970, which number which reached number 86 on the chart. So we talk about it being a themed jam and you know, what is, what exactly is a grateful dead themed jam? Well, uh, let me give you some examples. There was in addition, addition to the darkness jam, uh, that like we say was based based off the young blood song. There was the feeling groovy jam. Uh, it's basically a four cart, four chord jam based as you would imagine on the 1966 Simon and Garfunkel song, uh, and was frequently done in, uh, dark stars, from 69 to 72. And I almost wanted to say, as you would know by the name of the song, but of course, Feeling Groovy, I believe, is the 52nd or 56th Street Bridge song or whatever that song is on their album uh, where they talk about feeling groovy. But uh, that could just be uh, time and the drugs talking. So hopefully I'm right on that one. Uh, and didn't just embarrass myself even more. So that's the groovy jam, feeling groovy jam. Uh, like I said, it was primarily, you'd hear it in the middle of Dark Stars. 
uh, but by 72, they were kind of done with it. Uh, the next one we have is the Titan Up Jam, uh, which was a very common Latin-style jam theme in the, 19, in the year 1970. It's often called a proto-eyes jam, since Weir plays two repeating jazzy chords that are rhythmically similar to the opening of Eyes of the World. But they were commonly thought to be from Archie Bell and the Drell's 1968 tune of the same name, Tighten Up. So there was the Tighten Up jam. Then one that was very popular uh, and, and always has been with Deadheads is the Mind Left Body Jam. Uh, this orig originated in the Planet Earth Rock and Roll Orchestra, PERO, P-E-R-R-O, sessions. Uh, and just a quick diversion here, uh, the Planet Earth Rock and Roll Orchestra is a nickname given to some artists who recorded together early in the 1970s. They were predominantly members of Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Um, and uh, here you can hear uh, an early faster version of the four descending chords. Paul Kantner took this riff for his 1973 song, Your Mind Has Left Your Body, on which Garcia played pedal steel. Uh, Garcia, in turn, adopted it into a Grateful Dead theme, which first showed up on occasion in 1972, but started regularly entering the jams in the fall of 73. It added a transcend transcendental feeling to many shows up through 1974. And then finally, and I only say finally because I'm just limited on time, because uh, there's there's many more of these that we could kind of go on and on about. Um, but we have the Spanish Jam. Uh, and Bob, we're based the Spanish Jam on the song Solea on the Miles David album Sketches of Spain sometime in the late in late 1967 when the Dead started recording Anthem of the Sun, their second studio album. As was a, a little bit of the Spanish Jam actually got on the album in the form of a short Davis-flavored uh, Davis trumpet break from Phil in the middle of Born Cross-Eyed after the verse, think I'll come back here again every now and then from time to time. For a moment, it seems like Garcia and the band are about to break into the Spanish Jam, but they quickly cut back to the song. Um, so yeah, so we have these theme songs. Uh, the significance of the Darkness Jam uh, this night on July 31st, 1971, is that this was it. This was the last time they actually... Uh, this was the last time they played it, um, and uh, no explanation for why. Uh, it wasn't one that they played a whole lot of times, maybe five or six times, I think, uh, I saw when I was looking it up. Um, but it's a really cool jam, and, uh, you know, would definitely recommend checking it out and checking out any of these jams. You go online, and there's all sorts of blog posts where people go through all of these different jams and not just explain them, uh, but give citations and links to actual performances so you can, you know, hear the dead playing it and, and, you know, be more able to better understand what these guys are talking about when they're writing about these jams. But uh, uh, just, you know, part of the fun of going to a Grateful Dead show and uh, Darkness Jam is, is always fun to play in a situation like this. Before we launch out of here today and, uh, and, and play our song we're going to go out on, I just want to touch on something that I thought uh, I, that I saw. My wife actually sent it to me uh, as well. And um, it, it's a, a brief uh, quote or set of quotes from John Mayer when he was speaking with the media after the final night of the uh, Dead & Co. tour, playing their last night out at uh, Oracle Park where the Giants play ball out in the Bay Area there. And, uh, you know, quite poignant, I think, and they say maybe even a little emotional for John. Uh, he said, these tours with Dead & Company exist on an almost otherworldly plane. 
everyone on stage and in the crowd meets up in this shared dream. And on the last night after the final note is struck, we leave it all on the stage. We bow, we hug, we share our love for one another, and then we disappear. I, f- I fly through the dead of night and wake up at home where my ears ring, my heart sings, and I'm lep- left with this mix of fatigue, joy, accomplishment, and deep appreciation for what I was able to be a part of, Mayor shared. I can feel the connected collective experience of thousands of others who wake up feeling the same. I'll never get over the profound beauty and uniqueness of this and will never in our lifetime see the likes of Bob Weir, Mickey Hart, and Bill Kreutzmann playing beyond all perceived limitations and expectations. It's nothing short of remarkable. Thank you one and all for allowing me a seat on this transcendent ride. And then he goes on to say, for me, Dead & Company is still a band. We just don't know what the next show will be. I speak for all of us when I say that I look forward to being shown the light, excuse me, being shown the next shaft of light. I know we will all move towards it together. So, you know, I give John credit for that. That's, uh, you know, some, some deep stuff that he's touching on there. And, and, uh, you know, from my perspective, I think that, uh, you know, there's a suggestion that he really does kind of get it. And, you know, people have given him a lot of credit and rightly so for his ability you know, to adapt from kind of a pop rock and blues guitar player uh, into a guy who uh, was, was, was a very, very passable and some would say better than others, uh, you know, handling the Jerry role, uh, you know, for a, a band dedicated uh, to playing the Grateful Dead. So, uh, you know, it certainly sounds like he got it and it certainly sounds like it's something that really registered with him. And, you know, hearing that, I think, makes all of us feel a little bit better, too. Uh, you know, yes, it's easy for us to, you know, to, to point fingers at whether or not we like John, but, you know, John has every right to point those fingers right back. And, you know, if he didn't really enjoy the experience, if he didn't like playing with the guys, if he didn't really feel welcomed by the deadheads, uh, you know, then my thought is he would be less inclined, um, you know, to be, uh, you know, thinking about wanting to come back and therefore, you know, saying, you know, quote unquote, all the right things. Uh, I'm not saying he's saying this for any uh, other reason other than that he really means it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do think it's good to hear. And uh, I, I'm happy he spoke and said that. Uh, my understanding is, is that um, uh, Mickey and Bob have both had very complimentary things to say. And even Billy out there is, you know, trying to stay positive with everything. And uh, I just read their cues. If they're if they're all happy, then I'm happy. I have lots of great Grateful Dead music to listen to. I was telling Dan on the way into my office today, I had to sit in my car an extra five minutes after I got to the parking lot uh, because the morning dew from 5877 uh, at Barton Hall came on. And boy, we've talked about that show a lot. We've played it and we've played that morning dew. And, you know, Jim Marty and I, the first time it was featured on this show, and it just kind of puts you in a stunned silence no matter how many times you've heard it. And, you know, it's like if there's a movie that captures your attention and you can't walk out on, if you, if you step into that morning dew, uh, anywhere, uh, you know, if, if you're getting out of a taxi cab, you have to tell the driver, dude, I'm going to be in your cab for another three minutes here. I, I can't walk out of the middle of this guitar solo. Um, and, uh, and, and nobody wants to, um, you know, it, 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 it's just wonderful, uh, wonderful to hear and wonderful, uh, you know, that everything that the band does. And, uh, you know, for me, it, it's, it's great and it's fun. And I, I, I love being able to once a week focus on this, um, you know, when I get to do it solo, when I'm, 
blessed to have Rob around and tap into all of his knowledge and experience. And, uh, you know, certainly when I get to tap into the knowledge and experience of my big world of uh, deadhead buddies who are out there, who I've named some of them from time to time, and we'll keep naming them. And, uh, you know, guys from whom I never stop learning and always enjoy meeting up with uh, to see Grateful Dead music. So on the way out the door here today, uh, we're going to listen to a very early version uh, of an all-time classic, already a crowd favorite. You can hear the clapping and sing along. You can never go wrong with Uncle John's band anywhere, especially at the end of a show. Although here they actually closed out with Johnny B. Good, uh, no encore, which was typical for that time. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I hear that, I just think of Johnny B. Good as an encore anyway, probably because that's where we heard it so many times. Um, but uh, Uncle John's band is is one that everyone can relate to. Uh, if there's one or two Grateful Dead songs, people know the words to. Uh, this is one of them. And of course, it has the the, the um, uh, self-deprecating humor, you know, of, oh, oh what I want to know, how does the song go, uh, which we all laugh because inevitably, at least once per performance, somebody in the band steps up to the microphone and jumps in on the wrong verse or the wrong line. And everybody just at this point kind of smiles and goes along with it. And... Um, uh, you know, it, it's a lot of fun, but um, you know, you'll, you'll hear the crowd really loved it. Uh, a great way uh, to wind down a show and, and, and lead into the conclusion of the show. And uh, with that, we say thank you and goodbye to Yale uh, from July 31st, 1971. Uh, thank you and goodbye to everybody who listened this week. I'll be back next week with more great stories about the Grateful Dead, more wonderful stories about marijuana with Dan's fun introduction music and, uh, you know, other good stuff that we always have to talk about. We appreciate you listening. Stay safe and enjoy your marijuana responsibly. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.